Today's interview is a bonus to episode three, World War II in Wyoming. I am so pleased to introduce Cheryl O'Brien, author of World War II POW Camps of Wyoming. Welcome, Cheryl. Well, thank you, Carla. I'm happy to speak with you today. Your book was published just in time to help commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II this summer, which was such perfect timing. But I wanted to ask you first, what inspired you to tell this story and to write a book about POW camps in Wyoming? Well, I've always been interested in World War II. My father served during World War II in the Army Air Forces. And there's a POW timber camp here in Dubois. And I had visited the site a few times. I was fascinated that there was a camp right in our backyard that very few people knew much about. So I had interviewed a local person who lived in this area, and he had visited the camp when he was a young child with his grandfather, who was president of the Wyoming Tie and Timber Company. And he shared some of the things that he remembered as a young child at the camp. And I just found it fascinating and knew I had to find out more. Well, I find it fascinating, too, and especially the fact of German POWs for some reason. I guess it's because there are so many people of German ancestry in Wyoming, myself included. When, when I heard the story of the POW camps, I just think about the possible situation in which somebody is like a German ancestry family, like maybe German immigrants, and their sons are fighting the Germans in Europe, but here they are hosting German POWs at their camp. Like that just had to be such a, a mixed up time. And, you know, so many emotions go into that. Yes. And, and there were many Wyoming residents that had um, German and Italian and other backgrounds that did actually struggle with that. And they did um, have connections um, with, with the relatives back in other countries, such as Germany. Well, today in Douglas, the Officers Club is the only building still standing, or, you know, from it being a, a POW camp. And it's been repurposed into a, a really nice, small museum showing the life of, of prisoners of war. And I was especially taken with the wonderful mural there done by Italian POWs in 1944, because it captures not only what they thought of their time in Wyoming, but just popular culture at the time, because they used movies and classic Western art, such as paintings by Charlie Russell, to inform their murals. So to me, it was just so interesting to see that and how some of that popular ideology or imagery of the West was captured by these POWs so well. And the murals are, are beautiful. And it's um, the Camp Douglas Officers Club, you know, is a state historic site now. And you can go there and, and view the murals and the other artifacts and, and parts of that officer club to get an idea of what it looked like during that time. Could you just explain to us why there were POW camps in the U.S.? Why not just keep them in Europe? Like, they went to a lot of trouble to bring them here. 
Well, initially, the United States resisted requests from its allies to place camps here in our country. And in August of 1942, the United States finally agreed to accept an emergency group of 50,000 prisoners from Great Britain. And Britain was not able to accommodate the increasing numbers of prisoners that were being captured. And they strongly advocated the establishment of these camps in our country. And as the numbers of POWs um, continued to escalate quickly, so additional war prisoners were also sent here. And the U.S. had um, set up reception centers and processing procedures were established. Did Australia or Canada or, you know, some of the other countries that weren't in Europe but that were participating in the war, did they get any? You know, I don't know if they did at that time. I'm just curious about that. So could you just briefly describe the POW camps in general, their size and location in Wyoming? Because it wasn't just Camp Douglas. That's right. There were 19 prisoner of war camps here in Wyoming, and there were two major camps, Camp Douglas. Um, the major was the major Wyoming base camp that provided prisoners to the smaller branch camps. And the other major camp in Wyoming was at Fort Francis E. Warren, where the prisoners you know, mainly worked at the base. And another major base camp that provided prisoners to many uh, smaller branch camps in Wyoming was at Camp Scotts Bluff in Nebraska. And there were also 17 smaller agricultural uh, and timber branch camps here in Wyoming. And most of the Wyoming smaller camps served the agricultural industry. There were 13 agricultural camps I'll actually um, tell you what they were. They were they were at Basin, Deaver, Lovell, Powell, Clearmont, Warland, Riverton, Wheatland, Lingle, Torrington, Veteran, Huntley, and at Pine Bluffs. And then there were also four camps that served the timber industry that was located um, that they were located in Dubois, Ryan Park, Esterbrook, and Centennial. And your book does such a good job of just giving us something for each and every one of those, even if there's not a lot of information about some of the agricultural camps. To me, it was exciting to hear that, you know, wow, as, as close as Basin, that's the one that's closest to me. I've talked to a couple of people locally, and not everybody now knows that they were there. In Basin's case, there's an actual building still standing, which I, I haven't gone to go see, but I definitely will. And I'll post a picture on the website. Yeah, you're right. In Basin, the buildings are at the fairgrounds. I was very surprised during my research as you know, I traveled throughout Wyoming to locate these camps and to interview um, area residents on how many people were not aware that there were uh, World War II prisoner of war camps in their community, in Wyoming, or even in the United States. Were there any Japanese POWs in the U.S.? Well, there are about 436,000 prisoners of war um, held captive in the United States, um, which included about 380,000 uh, German prisoners, over 51,000 Italian POWs, and then a much smaller number, uh, about 5,400 Japanese prisoners of war. The prisoners were a very diverse group, and they included many other nationalities, too, including the Austrian, Czechoslovakian, and Polish prisoners of war. 
Where were the Japanese prisoners of war kept? I never uh, documented, uh, I never located any documentation of Japanese prisoners of war here in Wyoming. So in other, mm-hmm. in other POW camps. So I know that POW camps had to be set up in a very specific way. There were the Geneva Convention outlined those details. Could you tell us a little bit about what those requirements were? Yes. Well, some of the major requirements, um, the Geneva Convention provided, you know, specific guidelines on how to construct and operate the camps. And they were strictly followed. And the prisoners were provided with equivalent um, accommodations that the U.S. Army staff had, such as barracks or tents. So at a lot of the camps, if the POWs were in tents, so were the U.S. You know, military staff, and same with the barracks. Um, their daily work schedules couldn't be excessive, and they were given at least one day off a week, usually on Sundays. And the prisoners could not be assigned to dangerous or unhealthful work. And they were provided with the same basic safety equipment that the civilian workers had, such as hats and gloves and boots. And prisoners that were physically able could be required to work, except officers that were exempt, who were exempt from manual labor. And non-commissioned officers only had to do supervisory work. And they followed the Geneva Convention um, guidelines in, in Wyoming, and they, and they documented that they were following them. You, in the newspaper articles that you read, they'll talk about what the guidelines were and what they were doing at the camps. So they have these pretty strict guidelines, and they have to set up the camps in a, in a certain way in terms of how many people can fit in a building. And, but they're plopping down in a local community. How did, how did those locals react to the idea of these camps sprouting up? Well, there were, there were significant concerns raised by local communities and the U.S. government and the War Department um, during the planning and, and initial setup of these camps about security. The United States government and the War Department were especially concerned about you know, potential prisoner escapes and sabotage. And as the war progressed and generally only minimal problems occurred, security measures were relaxed. And the local residents that I interviewed from the POW camp host communities generally related that there was no animosity uh, toward the prisoners or fear of them, and that they needed and appreciated the POW labor to help harvest their crops and cut the timber. Right. I mean, we needed that because our own workforce was depleted with so many of our young men off to war. So they did agricultural work, and you said they did some other work. What other kind of things did they Okay. In addition to the agricultural work that they did, we also had the four timber camps. And so the prisoners helped cut timber to make uh, lumber and railroad ties. Food and transportation are two very important pieces of infrastructure. Yeah. And I really tried uh, to highlight the POW labor achievements in my book and the appreciation by the agricultural and timber industry and local residents for all the hard work by the prisoners. I remember one man was quoted as saying that they basically saved the day in terms of harvesting crops that year. Yes. Newspaper reports at the end of the year during harvest reports did say that, you know, they, they put out their appreciation and their thanks from the local communities. 
Was there a typical day? Could you describe a typical day for a POW? Well, a typical day varied uh, depending on if the prisoner was at a larger base camp or, or working at one of the agricultural or timber branch camps. And the prisoners at the agricultural camps, you know, they woke up early and they were transported to area farms to take care of and harvest crops, including hay and beans, sugar beets and potatoes. And they ate lunch um, at the farms. The lunches were provided by the camp. But their lunches were sometimes supplemented with extra food by farm families. And at the end of the day... Sounds like that was a highlight. Yeah. <laughs> that was how they chose, you know, they tried to get in to work at the farms where the cooking was the best. Yes. And then some of the prisoners who had been there longer, you know, knew the ropes, you know, they knew which farms to try to, try to get on, on those work duties. And then the POWs were returned to their camp you know, at the end of the day in time for supper at the camp. And they worked hard and, and they often had to deal with, you know, extreme heat during the summer months. And the prisoners at the timber camps, they also woke up early. One prisoner specified that they got up at six and left by seven and they would cut down trees to make the railroad ties or the lumber for construction materials. And they generally worked from the early summer into the early winter months. So they often mm-hmm. had to deal with extreme cold and snowy weather conditions in contrast uh, to the um, agricultural workers. And during their time off, the prisoners had many options on how to spend their free time, especially at those larger base camps. Some of the prisoners enjoyed playing musical instruments. They performed in concerts and plays. Um, they, They wrote essays. They enjoyed reading and watching movies. And there were a variety of sports. Uh, they they liked to play soccer, um, volleyball, ping pong. And the prisoners also had camp libraries at, at the larger base camps. And they could take a variety of courses, and, and many of them did. Hmm. So they had some opportunities there that probably affected the rest of their lives. Yes. And that is in some of the um, interviews that have been conducted with the prisoners, um, some of the courses they took and some of the things they learned about, um, they appreciated. Well, your book describes um, a lot of interactions between the POWs and the local community members, which makes sense since they're actually spending their days, their work days were pretty much off of the, of the camp and in the community. Could you share a few examples of some of those relationships that grew between POWs and, and local members of the community? Sure. There are many references in my book uh, to friendships that sometimes develop between the prisoners and those farm families where they spent so much time. And even though the farm families were told it wasn't necessary, or or in some cases it was prohibited to feed uh, the prisoners, many of them did. And some POWs made gifts for the farm families that treated them well, um, such as paintings and sketches and wood-carved items. And near Camp Deaver, one local landowner realized that his nephew was actually among the POW crew that was working on his farm. The prisoner's family was living in Germany. What a moment, you know, to realize that that's your nephew. Another type of interaction is religious services, both Catholic and Protestant, were provided at the main POW camps and at many of the branch camps including Dubois, Wheatland, Moreland, and Veteran. 
and families were allowed to visit the prisoners during specified times um, within the stockade. Some prisoners. How did that work? Like if you, I mean, because I, I would imagine there's not that many prisoners of war who had families that were local. Like and I would think that they would come from New York or Chicago or. That's right. But there were a, a lot of, there were several support type groups. So records indicate that the prisoners at Camp Douglas and Fort Warren were allowed to visit with their friends and relatives, you know, in those secured areas during specified time. And one um, Italian prisoner of war, um, who was a war prisoner at both uh, Douglas and Fort Warren, Cesar Ariano, he provided detailed information about his time at the camps. And he said that they could have visitors once a week at Fort Warren. And Italian Americans um, would come to visit the Italian prisoners of war um, as a hospitality um, outreach you know, to the homesick soldiers. And he actually met his future wife during one of the visits. <laughs> and that is a good story. In addition, some prisoners returned to Wyoming to visit or live uh, after the war. And I located records of at least five Wyoming prisoners of war that returned to live in the United States and three returned to live in Wyoming. And several POWs returned to the camps after the war with their families to show them around. And some of their stories are shared in the in the local newspapers. And some Wyoming and a few Wyomingites went to Europe, right? Is that what you were going about yes, to say? Yeah. Um, and especially, I want specific family from Warland visited um, a prisoner of war who worked on their father's farm. That visit was highlighted in a local newspaper article. Well, it wasn't all happiness and light. I mean, there was conflict at the camp, but it was mostly between the prisoners, which I was surprised about that. Could you explain a little more about that? Yes. Well, since the prisoners were such a diverse group, you know, conflicts between the prisoners did occur. And the prisoners had different nationalities, religious beliefs, different political beliefs. In addition, they had different personalities and there, there were some very young prisoners and some older prisoners, and they had different social statuses, um, even in the camps. And there were serious conflicts uh, reported, especially in the major camps, between the extreme pro-Nazi camp leaders and other prisoners that didn't follow pro-Nazi objectives. Several prisoners were threatened, harassed, and even beat up in some um, Wyoming camps. And when the War Department became aware of these conflicts, not just here in Wyoming, but throughout the United States, additional guidelines were set up to help identify and separate uh, the pro-Nazi extremists from the other prisoners. But threats to prisoners you know, still occurred. At Fort Warren, um, there were reports that indicate that the German prisoners and Italian prisoners did not get along. Um, they were separated, um, but there were conflicts. And the Italian soldiers' status changed in September 1943 after they surrendered to the Allies and declared war on Germany. And so the Italian prisoners, they were entitled to camp and work privileges that the German POWs didn't have, and that caused conflicts. And at Ryan Park, there were actually some physical altercations between the Austrian and German prisoners that took place. 
And other camp conflicts were reported at camps that were mainly related to strong prisoner personalities and, and strong leadership uh, traits by some of the longer term prisoners at the camp. Well, when I was there at Camp Douglas, the docent there, her father-in-law met some of the prisoners on his farm. I, I don't know how old her father-in-law was at that time, but you know, he does have memory of some of the prisoners coming to their family farm. And she told me the story of a prisoner who had, quote unquote, escaped. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that he was actually escaping from some prisoners <laughs> in the camp who were beating him up because he didn't espouse their same beliefs. And so he, he wasn't really running far. He just ran out of the camp basically and hid in a local in a local farm building that that's right and that made uh, newspaper headlines he was um hiding up in the attic of one of the barracks so they did find him that he w hadn't escaped but you're right he was they believe he was hiding from the you know pro-nazi extremists in the camp right interesting so what happened to the pow's after they they left the camp, and the Italians left first, right? Or they were given an option to leave? Yeah, many of the Italian prisoners, after their change in status, they served in the Italian service units or military-related jobs for the rest of the war. And other prisoners uh, continued to work here in the POW camps in Wyoming and throughout the United States. Many months after the war officially ended on September 2nd, 1945, with the formal unconditional surrender of Japan, and the prisoners continued to work at the camps. Um, they completed the fall harvest of the valuable crops into the late fall. And the prisoners at the timber camps, uh, they worked into the early winter of 1946. And so the last Wyoming prisoner war camp um, was at Fort Warren that closed in April of 1946. So most of the prisoners started to ship out um, in January of 46, and then the last prisoner left at the end of April 1946. And one of the most interesting parts of my research was that I found that prisoners were not immediately repatriated to their countries after they left the POW camps. And in June of 1945, the United States had agreed to provide POW labor to other countries to help you know, rebuild the war-torn countries. So many POWs served several months in other European countries after they left here, such as in Great Britain and France. And Wyoming POWs shared their stories and some recounted spending one to three additional years before finally being released to their home countries. Yeah, and I remember in the book you talked about some former German POWs writing back to their friends that they had made here at the farms and mm -hmm. describing how destroyed their communities were when they went back and kind of like there was no going back in a way. And when they did go back, some of those letters you referred to, they would describe how their houses were, you know, bombed out or destroyed and they couldn't repair them because there were no um, materials available and the famine that would that occurred in their countries too right well of course some of them never did return because they died of illness or accidents before that release date but that wasn't very common was it 
Uh, no, I located documentation of about 20 deaths of prisoners at the Wyoming camps and in area hospitals. And most of the deaths occurred at the major camps where most prisoners were located, but at least five uh, deaths occurred at the smaller branch camps, accidental deaths. Some prisoners, you know, they died from illnesses or war injuries that they received before they ever arrived in the camps. And a few died in area hospitals, but then were buried at the Wyoming camp cemetery. It's, there was one prisoner who was shot and killed while trying to escape from Camp Douglas and one prisoner who committed suicide in May of 1945 after he found out that Hitler had died and he's buried at Fort Warren. And most of the prisoners were buried at the larger POW camps in the area and then relocated to US military cemeteries after the war. And you know a lot of that was due to the extreme poor conditions in their home countries. So for example, Camp Dubois POW who was killed in a timber accident, initially he was buried in Fort Robinson, Nebraska, but when the military post closed, the POW cemetery was moved to the Camp Butler National Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois. And six Italian and German prisoners were temporarily buried at Camp Douglas, but after the war, they were transferred to the Fort Riley Kansas National Cemetery for final burial. And the only remaining POW camp cemetery is located at Fort Francis E. Warren, which is the F.E. Warren Air um, Force Base. And uh, my understanding is that the German government still sends flowers to be placed on their graves every year on German Memorial Day? Yeah. Um, interviews at Fort Warren, that, that is the case that they, they send funding for to put flowers on the German prisoner graves. So why is it important for us to know this history? Well, I believe it's very important to be aware of this like little known part of Wyoming's history. And as I mentioned before, when I traveled throughout Wyoming to make sure that each campsite could be located and interview the local people, um, many people were not aware that there were World War II POW camps here in Wyoming or, or even in the United States. And and with the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II approaching this summer, it's a good time to document and share the information before it's lost. Well, I have a few questions that I ask all my guests. And one of them is, what is something that people driving through Wyoming may not realize about us or about our state? I'd have to say how much there is to see and do in Wyoming, in addition to the well-known places, you know, such as Yellowstone and the Tetons. You know, our state has so much variety, the mountains, lakes, and farm and ranch country, and small communities and cities to immerse ourselves in, you know, historic sites and unique areas, you know, such as the Red Desert. You could never run out of places to explore in Wyoming. Well, I know that you've lived in other places, too, so you have a point of comparison. What do you think is the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? For me, it's the long winter and transition to a short spring. You know, I love the seasons. I love summer, fall, and winter. But winter often hangs on here a long time up in the mm -hmm. high country where I live. Sometimes we get our first snow the end of September, and then it, then we do get some nice weather um, throughout October and, and even into November. And then winter continues December, January, February, March. April. <laughs> and, and we have, you know, we have little flashes of it into May as well. Right. Yeah. Wyoming people do 
consider spring to be May, which, you know, in most of the rest of the country, spring is like March. <laughs> and what do you love most about Wyoming? Oh, I love it all. You know, I love the opportunities to be able to travel across the state and experience all there is to see. And especially those less traveled areas where you can just enjoy the beauty and solitude of our state. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thank you so much. And I'm definitely going to put a link again on after the interview for people to purchase your book and ask for their libraries to cut, have the book. Cause I feel like every community needs to have this book to be able to know what was going on right there in their backyard. Well, thank you. I hope they enjoy it. It was lots of fun, uh, you know, conducting the research and talking to all the people across the state who were very enthusiastic about sharing their knowledge and experiences. Well, thank you so much for doing that project and for coming on today and telling us about it and just for being curious, you know, stay curious, write more books. We want to hear more. (laughs) Thanks, Carla. All right. We'll have a great one. You too. Ah, that sounded so much better if I say so myself. I want to just give a shout out to Squadcast. It's a podcast recording platform that has really helped me improve the sound quality of my recording. And thank you again to Cheryl O'Brien for this bonus interview. Please check out her book. It can be purchased online or locally in many places or by calling the History Press. And I have details on all of that in the show notes. These can be found on the website wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. And make sure you're following Wyoming My 307 on Instagram. I've posted lots of pictures of the World War II murals that I've talked about in the World War II episode, as well as this bonus episode. So before closing the gate on this bonus episode, I'd like to share with you a poem that's in Cheryl's book. It was written by an unnamed German POW stationed in Basin, Wyoming, which is pretty close to where I live today. And it was translated into English by Lowell Bangerter. The poet describes his perception of the Wyoming land near his camp at Basin. It's called In Wyoming Near Basin. Immense, immeasurably great, this land White peaks afar jut upward to the sky, where clouds tear loose from them, from summits grand, and their dark shadows wander over the throngs of high, bleak, empty hills of men completely free, as broad, as lonely as the distant sea. Close to the river that flows through the plains, presses itself a broad green strip of land, which fields and meadows, houses and yards contain. Along the edge of fruitless barren sand, it colors water that gives drink to fields, flies in the wind when sun its hot breath yields. The land is large and lies untamed and wild. The thunder rumbles in the far ravine, the lightning flashes in the darkness mild. The storms range through the deep bay, cold and mean. Wild waters rush in fury downward bound and drag so many to the grave's cold ground. 
But when upon a happy day the tender breeze blows through the green trees there, when man and beast in cooling shadows stay, then is the quiet land sunk down in prayer from distant peaks untouched, caught in white glow, one feels the breath of eternal snow. I love that poem. I just imagine this German POW who must have been in awe of the wide open spaces that we have here in Wyoming compared to Europe, which has less of these wide open spaces and wilderness than we do. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and happy trails to you until we meet again.